Hey you guys, hope you're well. I just wanted to take this opportunity and let you know about our amazing new business scalability scorecard. So have you ever wondered if, you've, if you're an entrepreneur, you're a business owner, and you want to grow and scale the business but not sure how, and you're looking for some advice and you're looking for some strategies about how you could effectively grow and scale your business, well, this is your opportunity. We have actually created an amazing uh, business scalability scorecard. It takes you around seven to eight minutes, and at the end of that, it will actually create a report of all of the things that you're doing particularly well in and the things that you need to make improvements to your business. And uh, it's a great tool and a great asset for your business. To get free access to that, go to bit.ly forward slash business hyphen scalability hyphen scorecard. Go there, go now. Take care, see you soon. This is the Game Changers Experience. Deep dive conversations with leading business disruptors, Olympic athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and influencers from around the world. This show will teach you insights about the winning principles in mindset, productivity, marketing, branding, entrepreneurship, business strategy, and more. Hosted by Productivity Authority, business strategist, former elite athlete, author, and public speaker, Adam Strong. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Game Changers Experience with myself, Adam Strong. And today, I am so excited about today's show because this particular individual I actually met on Clubhouse. You know, and, and, and I'm sure that you've heard me raving about Clubhouse for the last couple of episodes. It's the audio only app on iOS. If you've got an Apple phone like I have, then you have, uh, oh, you know, if you haven't already joined, do me a favor. Go find someone who's got an invitation. In fact, you can send me a personal invitation. I'll send you one of my 20 million invitations that I've got anyway. But listen, I am on the show with a guy who I highly, highly respect. Um, I'm so excited about him being on the show and, and, and spending some time with us. Um, his name is uh, Frank Sinopoli. And Frank is half Italian and half Canadian, if I'm not mistaken rightly. Frank's past is most recognized for starting, scaling, and selling Canada's first digital grocery coupon. And he sold that business to uh, tech giant CGI for $20 billion. Uh, currently, no, 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 the, <laughs> I've, I've said that incorrectly. But Frank is the, currently the founder and the, uh, the CEO of a, of, a, of a company called Grocery Neighbor, which we'll talk about very, very shortly. Um, Grocery Neighbors actually just been nominated and, and I'm sure that they've just, what they actually just won Global Trends, Global Retail Trends and Innovation Award for 2021. Nike won it in 2020, by the way, just want to let you know. Um, he actually sits as, as, as a strategic advisor to a lot of big brands, but now kind of spent his, a lot of his time working with startup companies in helping them find their space. So uh, Frank, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's an honor. By the way, I did say that incorrectly, didn't I, about CGI? Well, CGI is the $20 billion tech company. They didn't buy the company for $20 billion. They are the $20 billion tech company. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's all good, though. That, that, that's all good, right? It would have been really good if he did sell it for $20 billion. Mind you, he probably wouldn't be sitting with me right now. He'd probably be sitting on a beach in the Bahamas. No, I disagree. I would absolutely still be here right now. You know my <laughs> personal opinion on time and the value of time. 
love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. Very cool. Listen, um, it's interesting because you know we met on Clubhouse, and you know we met probably about I don't know, probably about six weeks ago, maybe a little bit longer, and stuff like that. And you know, I find um, I find I find you really fascinating, not just as a as, as a as a business owner, but and as an entrepreneur, but as as a person. You know, I'm I'm interested in. In, in people in particular, interesting people really that want to disrupt and change the world. And that's what this show is all about. Now, what's going to say, you have kind of, you know, do a, you've done a lot of stuff in the tech world in particular, you know, you're doing grocery neighbor, which we'll talk about shortly, but tell us about where your creativity side has come from in terms, does it, did it come from your family side? Did it come from someone that you kind of aspire to? I'd love to know where that journey started for you. Yeah, I don't have any history of people in my family being any kind of entrepreneurs. Um, none of it uh, stems from anything I can directly correlate it to. What I, I think I, I tie it to my ridiculous curiosity. <laughs> I'm so curious to figure things out, to understand things, to understand my environment, to be able to control as much as I can, that it creates that creativity because I'm so curious that I'm willing to try multiple different things that it just, I guess, translates into creativity and the willingness to try things. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I particularly like, love about your, I suppose, your skill set more than anything else is you know, that, that ability as such, you know, when did you, um, cause I mean, you started off in couponing, which is really interesting. I mean, uh, there's a particular great show in the United States, um, and they probably show it in Canada, which, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a show dedicated to people that collect like paper coupons and they go into the store, right. And you've probably seen this, right. And they've got like, I don't know, two, three hundred bucks worth of groceries. And then they've got about a million coupons. And this and, and then at the end of it, they're paying like, I don't know, 10 cents for their groceries. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. This person has got so much time on their hands to collect coupons. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen that extreme show? Extreme couponing. Exactly. Yeah, extreme couponing. couponing. Exactly that extreme yeah. couponing. Oh, my God. But. What I was going to say to you, I mean, did you get that concept from extreme couponing? I mean, I know that digital couponing is a little bit different and stuff like that, but when did that start for you? Was that like, you know, was that ages away? How, how did the kind of concepts uh, learn from that? Interesting enough that my background wasn't anything to do with technology or couponing. Every business that I've started and sold had nothing to do with the last one. They were almost entirely different industries with the coupon platform. I had decided I was going to take on Groupon and I was going to create a membership program that instead of having this eight by 11, you know, 50% coupon that would be embarrassing to pull out at a restaurant, you would have a membership card that you'd hand over and it would be recognized as the rewards program and they would just apply a discount. And when I was in the middle, the day that I launched that business, we were featured on the Toronto Star and the word coupon came to my head as in paper coupons are gone. Because as I was driving, I was thinking about even the best case scenario, I was looking at a revenue potential and it was interesting, but it wasn't impactful. It wasn't something that I thought, okay, I really want to dedicate all my time. And then the idea of removing paper from the digital or from the coupon world kind of spawned all within the idea of trying to take on Groupon. 
And that's when I decided uh, to do a little bit of digging. I found out that eight people touch a coupon after you give it to the cashier. And I thought, hey, this is a huge opportunity, a big space. I learned that all the big players tried and failed and thought, okay, that's a good enough reason for me to give it a kick. Because I think <laughs> if I can get it past the finish line, uh, something would happen there. So it, really, it was really just identifying an opportunity that may or may not have worked, but I was so radically curious to understand why hadn't it worked yet? What was the reasons? And that curiosity allowed me to figure it all out. You know what I love about you is that you, you love taking calculated risks, but you take those risks based on, like you just said, curiosity. And I'm like, how the freak do you end up justifying curiosity as a massive risk? <laughs> Well, when we get to the grocery neighbor's story, I'll explain how that curiosity turned into the largest <laughs> retail activation in history. Interesting. Um, I mean, Groupon's been around for, for years now. I mean, it's in Canada, it's in Europe. There's quite a few things I don't like about Groupon in particular is like, you know, if you are, say you're in the service-driven industry, right, Frank? And you offer, say, a discount, say 50% off your services. Say you're a massage therapist and you're charging normal rates, say, I don't know, 80 bucks. You do a Groupon, it's 40 bucks. And then 50% of that 40 bucks is then swallowed up from Groupon, which means you've got 20 bucks minus your taxes. So you've probably got about 16 or 15 bucks, which doesn't really leave a lot for profit. But then in the consumer's mind, the consumer's mind is, why would I pay full whack for this service again, right? What's the difference? Whereas in, I, I suppose in your case, like when it comes to coupons and stuff, it kind of overcomes that, that kind of mindset. What, what are your thoughts about that? No, actually it is a big concern for brands and brand equity is integral to these big players who don't want to get people used to spending bottom dollar for their products. So as an example, when we would deploy a coupon, Let's say I'll use Kraft as an example. If we were doing a Kraft peanut butter coupon, it was important to them that we weren't issuing it at the exact same time that there'd be a flyer discount. So if there's an in-store sale where they're giving $2 off and then I layer that with $2 off peanut butter, we're programming the customer to get used to buying it for this ridiculously low rate. And then subconsciously it becomes a challenge the next time they come into the store to buy it for $6 when they previously bought it for 2 so it is, even in the couponing space, there's this concern that you lower the brand equity if you discount too often or too much. Yeah. Why do, why do consumers, uh, I suppose, brands do the discounting? Because normally, I mean, my analogy is, is that you shouldn't discount your main products line as such. You know, Is it because they just want to create brand awareness? What are the reasons for that? Yeah, sometimes it's driving trial, sometimes it's conversion, sometimes they're just trying to move product, sometimes it's driven from the retailer themselves, they're trying to get people into the store. Right. But even the biggest brands out there, they still offer those coupons for the people that might not be converted yet, they might be looking for the trial. They, on the other side of it, if they're concerned about, oh, it's going to go to people that are already buying our product, then instead of looking at it that way, they look at it as, let's reward loyalty. So I think that the upside is probably more than the downside, which is why historically people continue to do it because it does drive trial and it might even get somebody who wasn't thinking about buying it to go, ah, screw it, I'll buy it. Yeah, but on the other side, I remember actually a good friend of mine had actually done it and he was in the fitness space, Frank. 
And so he was doing like, you know, like these outdoor boot camp. And and then he basically, you know, they come for like the first five sessions at a discounted rate. But then off, off the back of that, he would then sell people into a monthly subscription, which worked particularly well and got oversubscribed in a very short space of time. But I, I guess his biggest fear was I'm now so oversubscribed. I just literally cannot do so much, right? It's kind of crazy. It's a good problem to have. <laughs> it seems a good problem to have. Um, what I was going to say to you, what I love about our conversations on Clubhouse actually is that you really love to fail. Like you really embrace failure. I don't really like to call it failure. I, I like to call it learning journeys or, or a learning journey because to me it is it's like a learning journey. But I know that, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that have the very different mindset where they fear failure, especially Europeans in particular, actually. Tell us why you feel very differently about, I suppose, wanting to fail and, and, and that kind of stuff. And, and you know, I get, I'd love to know what your thoughts are on this. Yeah, absolutely. My belief is, is that we don't know what we don't know. And when you go out to pursue a venture, any kind of mission that you're on, until you actually start pursuing it, you don't know what you don't know. So my logic has always been, I'm going to throw myself into the fire to start <laughs> failing, to start understanding what doesn't work, because it's almost more important to know what doesn't work than what does, because there's no one size fits all solution to winning, right. but mistakes can be identified as things that you can easily replicate that won't work again. So for me, I've always treated business as almost this linear process and I turn it into a video game. And the analogy that I use is who cares if I don't pass level one, my first try, what I know is I always pass level one eventually. And by the time I get to level two and I die maybe at level three and I have to start over, well, that level one is ridiculously simple for me now. So my ability to get to level three is a lot quicker. Therefore, for me, failures have always just taught me every step of the way how to avoid failure at that stage. Thus, today, when I want to execute a business, I can get from you know, A to W ridiculously fast because I know what not to do. Because again, that's where you learn the most, right? You're from your failures. And that's why on Clubhouse, I try and teach from a place of failure because the scars that I wear could prevent other people from having to endear those scars themselves. Yeah, good point. Absolutely great point there. You talk about your scars and you talked about, you know, you've had probably more, should we say more failures than successes as, as like most really successful entrepreneurs have done. But can you just give us, um, you know, some examples of, you know, maybe businesses that you've tried and, and it kind of either, it was a real big learning curve for you. And what did you learn from that experience? What was the circumstances? Yeah. So do you want me to hit it directly from a specific business or do you want me to hit it from a, Hey, here's some general failures that I learned from that people can kind of consume and adopt immediately. What do you prefer? Uh, we can do both. Whichever you prefer. I'm, I'm actually pretty easy. Let's go, let's go for the ladder. Okay, perfect. So one of the things that I, I noticed a lot of people fail and where I failed in the beginning was I had this notion that every time I had a great idea, I needed to protect it. I didn't want anybody to know about it. And what that did is it created this environment of certainty as to why the idea would work 
I didn't really start considering why it might not work. It also led me down a path to believe that I had all the answers, the solutions. Without getting people's feedback, what ended up happening with this great concept that I was bringing to market is when I actually put it into market, nobody knew what the hell to do with it. Nobody knew how to use it. And it was because I didn't do any product market research. I didn't do any analysis to understand how it would fit, how would people adapt to it. I just saw a problem and thought, I've got a great solution for that. But I never considered why it wouldn't work. So the big learning that I had, which is really why I got Grocery Neighbor to where it is today, is by using the strategy. The learning that I had was expose it. Expose your ideas so that the people that don't like it and don't believe in it can come forward and tell you that and give you problems that you need to solve that you might not have considered before. So a big learning in the beginning um, was really to not hoard my idea and to realize that ideas are a dime a dozen. Execution is everything. So as soon as you can, get people to try and break your idea. I love it. You know, it's interesting because, I mean, you've heard this before, right? This kind of entrepreneurial mindset of, oh shit, I've got someone that wants to copy my intellectual property, my idea, and, and they, they're going to steal my ideas and that kind of stuff. But what you're saying is quite the opposite, which is really interesting because, but I, I want to challenge that thought process if that's okay. Why is it that you think that way? And, 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 you know, I, I obviously it's done, done you, you know, fantastic. It's really taken you on a, on a great path, but any advice for people that maybe have this fear of kind of, I want to hold it onto myself and no one's going to have it. It's like kind of mine type of thing, you know? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, execution is everything. Ideas come and they go. And the moment you launch your business anyways, everybody's going to know about it. And anybody that wants to take it and copy it will have the ability to do so. I understand that people want a head start. They want to be able to have that first mover advantage. And that's huge. You definitely want that. I'm not suggesting go to the competition and ask for their feedback, give them your idea. I'm suggesting go to as many sources as you can that you trust that will give you real raw feedback and ask people to try and break your idea. You know, the idea of somebody just taking your idea and running with it. First of all, these big companies, they can't move and they're not as nimble as a startup might be. Secondly, there's no guarantees to any victories. There's a reason why Google and all the big guys go and overpay for some of these companies. It's because Yes, they can invest the money today and try and go head to head and risk losing the investment, or they can overpay a little bit right now, buy the victory and make it up in the long run. So it goes back to, you know, not everybody wants to steal your idea, especially if it's brand new and exciting. A lot of people, yeah, they're like, hey, I want to take it. And then there's the other half that goes, let's sit back and wait and see what happens. Because in a lot of cases, and I've done it, I just open the door. I opened the door to monster industries that I started, but my shitty execution ended up meaning that all I did was open the door for everyone else to win and succeed. So, you know, my belief really just is, is that and you've got to try and break it for you before you invest the time into make it. And if you can't break it, then it's definitely worth trying to make it. But you don't know what you don't know. So get the idea out there. Love it. Very cool. Um, interestingly enough, I know that we're going to talk about Grocery Neighbor, which is, you know, you, you're, I believe you're in Toronto. Is that correct? 
And so I'd love to know more about where I know that you've got some experience in the trucking industry in particular, which 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 I'd love to kind of first talk about. But grocery neighbor, really interesting concept. In fact, even I get excited when you first talk to me about it. I'm like, shit, I want to invest in it. I want to start a grocery neighbor. Why didn't I think about that? Right. It's kind of like that. that's kind of how I thought about it when I first had a conversation with you. But where did that concept come from, and where was the where where did the opportunity? Where, what was the opportunities that you saw? Yeah, so it was all in the wake of the pandemic. On March twenty fourth, I sent out messages via Facebook, email, text to many different groups, saying, you know, this is the moment to leapfrog where you are. the The playing field has been leveled. If you don't like where you are, now's where the opportunities are going to reveal themselves. And the thought process that I had was we can go after crumbling businesses that have historical data, proven viable business models. All we got to do is go in there, replace the relationships, operate with integrity and rebuild. Or we could go and solve new problems. I got crickets back. Nobody really came uh, forward and said, hey, I want to do this. I think the notion and mentality was COVID is happening. There's so much uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen. So we're just going to kind of park ourselves. My brain thought, no, 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 this is a chance. There's problems to be solved here. And I put myself into my think tank, which is where I usually go to try and conceptualize ideas, solve problems. And this thing hit me so quickly. It was a culmination of my past. I never really built a company that was relative to the last one. But this was transportation, technology, grocery, coupon. It was everything. And it made so much sense. But I had no idea how to bring it to life. So I go back to, I exposed it. My thought process was, I don't know what I don't know. So I'm going to expose it to the world because my belief was that everybody that hates it and everybody that dislikes it will come forward and tell me why it doesn't make sense and why it doesn't work. This would create a list of problems that I need to solve, effectively my due diligence that I would end up going and hitting walls on my own anyways. Instead, let the professionals, let the people around the world who know this space come forward. The people that loved it would come forward with positive energy, excitement, and new ideas to carve it into what it needs to be. The culmination of the haters and the lovers was giving me the exact solution that I needed to create and all the problems that I needed to solve. So Grocery Neighbor was, you know, they say mother is, or necessity is the mother of invention. And that's what Grocery Neighbor was. It was in in the perfect time and it just worked. I had no idea. (laughs) <laughs> that it was going to be millions and then thousands of franchise requests, hundreds of investor inquiries. I had no idea, but I got everything I needed. I got all the pieces of the puzzle by exposing it. And yeah, sure. Maybe people are out there building, but I think that's quite flattering. And if they contribute to solving global food insecurity, then I think I've done a good job just yeah, in that. Absolutely. Agree. When you say that you exposed it, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm kind of, you've cri- piqued my curiosity about, how did you expose it? Did you basically go out and reach out to, I don't know, individuals in the, I, I don't know, in investors or people in the grocery retail space? I'd love to know, like, you know, how, how you kind of went about that. Yeah. So there's this misconception that when you have this concept, you have to raise all this money and you have to go to build your prototype. For me, I don't do that. As soon as I get an idea, the first thing I do is I hire someone to create a rendering, create an image, give me my visual, give me something that I can birth, that I can take around and represent 
with relentless confidence that I am going to bring this to life. This is my future business. So the first thing I always do is I bring it to life visually. That gives me something tangible I can take around and get other people excited about. When I say I exposed it, Diane Buckner of CBC uh, posted something on LinkedIn saying, hey, anybody building any companies during COVID? And I thought, way too soon to be going to CBC. And then I thought, but is it? So (laughs) we said to Diane, she loved it. She wrote the story and it just caught fire. It trended on Apple news and then it just blew up. Then one article after the other. I mean, now it's been over a year and there's still articles being released. There's still recognition and the team is growing, but it all came from vapor. It was nothing more than an idea that I then used the momentum to bring in everything. I just loved it. The fact that you kind of piggybacked off mainstream media and without having to pay a single dime to get all this exposure, you just got it done free. It was kind of crazy. In fact, is that one of the pictures behind you, by the way, the visuals? Yeah. So that's just the framework. Like, so that's the core, the shell. It doesn't have the capping. It hasn't been designed. There's no HVAC on it. That's just the shell of GN one. Right. So it's just kind of like my, uh, I wear it proudly. It's, you know, the very first one. Um, so that, yeah, that's fine. Like a prototype. But yeah, I, yeah, exactly. It's, and it, but, but actually it will become an actual working functional, but it was the, it was the very first thing that we were kind of kicking the can around. <laughs> I love um, it. But yeah, the mainstream media afforded us the opportunity to get thousands of franchise requests and we didn't spend a penny. And that's, I feel so grateful. People spend so much money to get franchise leads. <laughs> They come in daily. Still to this day, I get daily franchise requests. It's super exciting, super uh, inspiring. So I I mentioned actually, because you have uh, some experience in logistics and trucking, right? Is is that correct? Yep. Built the second largest. I was just going to say, tell us a little bit about that. Like, you know, because... And that's really interesting. I'm really interested to know more about that because logistics, I, I, you know, it, I find it fascinating when I started reading, I think it was on one of the tech news uh, newsletters that I get sent on a daily basis about, the, you know, this was going back probably the good part of 12 months where Amazon started testing out drones in the middle of Las Vegas, you know, shipping parcels yeah. across. And I was like, wow, is that what the future entails? But I don't know. Uh, I'd love to know more about what your, uh, what your experience in logistics and tracking was. Awesome. Yeah. So first of all, if you go to groceryneighbor.com, you'll see at the bottom of the homepage that we're about to release an announcement about our ground drones. So we're doing ground drones, but because we're neighborhood centric, we don't have all the complications of having to travel long distances, et cetera. So it just lends itself well to our environment. Um, transportation was interesting for me. I had no emotional connection or attachment to transportation. Quite frankly, it wasn't a very appealing industry. Um, but when my father passed, I decided I was going to start taking life a little bit more seriously. And I wanted to go out and get a job. And I had the opportunity to work for EB Games in their warehouse. And at the time, I mean, I was a video gamer. It was a dream job. But I also had the opportunity to be a dispatcher at United Van Lines. And the job was going to put me in contact with companies right across Canada. So at the young age, I thought, oh, I want to go play with these video games. I just want to get stoned all day and go play video games. But 
over here's an opportunity to rub elbows with entrepreneurs right across Canada. Right. Screw it. I'm going to take the less glorifying job. <laughs> and when I got into United Van Lines, what I started learning was that there was a lot of second generation owners. There was a lot of older people in the space. And it just felt like it was, there was a lot of tunnel vision. It felt like there was so much legacy being dragged that I had this thought that a little bit of technology would disrupt the space. And I met this fantastic man, Mark Radcliffe, who was twice my age. You know, he was on the verge of pushing 60, but he was an operator through and through. And people loved Mark, but they also hated him. It was one or the other. And not many people were able to work with Mark. But Mark saw something in this crazy kid, the ability to win over an audience, the ability to sell, the ability to convey a message, a story. And Mark and I became quite close quite quickly. And when United Van Lines bought the rights to Mayflower, which was the biggest name in moving on the planet at the time, Mark and I appealed to the board of directors. I was just a kid going in and asking for the rights to the strongest brand and looking to be the first standalone Mayflower agent. And we also didn't have two pennies to put together. Wow. So we went out after being laughed out of the boardroom saying, you know, first of all, kid, don't start a trucking company. It's the most saturated space out there. And look at us. You don't want to turn out to us. And we went out, we got a million dollars to start Canada's first standalone Mayflower agent. And I looked at Mark, said, you're going to be the operator. And I'm just going to go and crush sales. I am going to build this off the backbone of technology that nobody else is considering, processes, customer service. And within five years, we were the second largest special products carrier in the system. And I just wanted out. I mean, it was boring. I'm a wartime CEO. I'm a builder. I like being in the weeds, doing what everyone thinks is not possible or is not going to happen. As soon as the ship is upright and sailing, I almost feel like I don't even belong anymore. You know, <laughs> I'm, I, I want to build. I want to continually build. And that's why Grocery Neighbors is exciting is because it's an opportunity to continually grow, to continually build impact. So, yeah. you know, while we're scaling across North America and then being introduced to different countries, you know, I don't see it being something I get bored of. But yeah, honestly, transportation, it was just, I saw an opportunity and thought, there's no glory in this business, but there's money to be made. And that's how I'm going to get create my stepping stone. And that's what I did. Love it. Love it. Great story, that one. So, Grocery Neighbor, just give us a quick rundown. What is Grocery Neighbor? Just for, just for our audience and stuff like that. Yep. It's the world's first mobile grocery store. So this isn't groceries on the back of a truck. It is wheels on a grocery store. It's an actual grocery store with temperature controlled environments, positive airflow. It's completely autonomous. So it is the safest form of physical grocery shopping while also being the most convenient form of physical grocery shopping. So really, really exciting. Love it. Very good. Now, I know that, interestingly enough, and in terms of the future of mobile, and in fact, I really kind of want to tap into this. This is a really interesting one, for, especially for the listeners that are maybe in the retail space in particular, is that the retail industry has really taken a battering, you know, during the pandemic in particular. Um, where do you think this, you know, where, where grocery neighbor kind of, you know, it's, it's a new concept, essentially, you know, you're 
going into a neighborhood and, and, and coming really close to them, you know, closing, come to, to the consumers as close as they can. They don't, and you're, you're, you're really kind of tapping into uh, the convenience for most people, right? That if you're making people's lives easier, then people should buy it, right? How do, how do you think that other retailers in particular, especially with people that have maybe say a bricks and mortar business, right? Because bricks and mortar businesses are, have been around for, for many, many years, as you know. How do you think or how do you see people that have bricks and mortar businesses and them kind of looking at Grocery Neighbor as a concept and being able to revolutionize the way retail is seen in, in the world today? And, and I think it, it's really interesting, and this is the re reason I asked this question, I think I've been looking around for years to seeing how retail, especially bricks and mortar, when you're looking like the malls and the high streets and, you know, that kind of stuff, they're, they're dying, Frank. Do you know what I mean? They're dying because yeah. I don't know what, you know, and, and, and it takes a new type of innovation like you're doing right now. How do you think from your perspective, how do you think it's going to open a new wave for the retail industry in, in terms of you kind of being the forefront of that? Yeah, I think that a lot of people are obviously going to probably follow suit off the backbone of a successful execution. You know, our focus is really more the underserved neighborhoods and neighborhoods that are 15, 20 minutes out, because we don't actually want to be competing with those stores. If you're already five minutes from a grocery store, then we're not really relevant to you. I right. think the big guys are all doing the same thing and trying to quickly transition over to obviously online groceries. What I think might happen, and this is just an opinion, you know, I've never been asked the question, so I'm going to shoot this off the top of my head. But what I think might happen is, is that you're going to start seeing these brick and mortar companies start using their assets more for fulfillment and, and helping their, let's say, online strategies and or lending themselves to the other third party platforms. You know what the problem right now that I'm seeing is, is we're being forced into the future and that's great. But what you are today is only magnified by your growth. So online grocery had all these little issues with quality, time, or speed of which you deliver, and then pricing. Well, that was then forced to scale quickly. And now you're seeing those issues more, I guess, at scale. So I think the people in brick and mortar are, allow, are now being able to identify Okay, what's going on? What's happening wrong with this immediate shift to online grocery, which will allow them to probably better collect and adapt to the environment. What they'll do with their assets, you know, I'm not entirely sure. I think it might lend itself well to more of a fulfillment model, but I'd be, I'd be really surprised if there wasn't a bunch of retailers right now working on exactly what we've done, which is why <laughs> we went out to grab the land, right? And the other thing, Adam, that people don't realize why I think retailers will start looking at what we're doing is, and I don't mind exposing this and, you know, come after me, big guys, because <laughs> I'm all for it. I love the game. Um, but we're positioning ourselves to just demolish online grocery. And what I mean by that is in a world where last mile matters the most and everyone's trying to figure out how quickly they can deliver to you, how efficiently they can deliver to you and right. at what level of quality they can deliver to you. We reside in the last mile. Our stores are in these neighborhoods. Therefore, because we're intellectual, we're intelligently positioning ourselves only in neighborhoods where we're relevant, we're able to make the promise that nobody else can. 
delivering you groceries faster than you can get them yourself. And not only are we able to deliver them faster, but we don't need a delivery fee, a minimum spend. And then when it's one of your neighbors picking the produce for you and they don't have to pick it for 30 other people, you're getting curation, you're getting quality. So I see an evolution where the big retailers start going, wow, this is actually positioning themselves to also take over online. And what I believe will happen is third parties will pick from us. It won't make any sense for them to go to anybody but the person closest to the consumer. So I think what's exciting about what we're doing is positioning yourselves to tackle online. I think the people with brick and mortar are going to need to start to figure out how do they either, A, if they're not ahead of the curve and being a part of the new wave, how do they service then that new wave of technology? Like for me, as an example, as I continue to grow and get more land, and some of these people that have these monster facilities and access to everything that I currently have access to and or need, maybe there's collaboration to be able to help one another. But you know, I think it's it's an interesting question, and I don't know what uh, I don't know what a lot of these guys are going to do because some of these people have a scary amount of assets. Absolutely. I always like to put seed into people's thoughts uh, off the show. Anyway, I was going to say you've obviously raised a huge amount of money. I think you closed on one seed. You're in the second seed of of funding right now. I'd love to know what, in particular, what makes your business so attractive to investors and why do they keep coming back and saying, I want more and I want more. What, what is it? What is the secret to, to attracting, you know, a, a pool of investors that just are basically throwing money at you? Big ideas attract big brains, which attracts big money. So when you got a big idea, exposing it's going to get you the attention and it's going to give you the ability to go out and bring on the big brains, which is what I did. I went out and I got some really good names that were expressing interest in the business so that I can leverage their experience, their knowledge and their connections. But when you walk into an investor presentation with unwavering confidence and relentless belief in the realization of the business model through your hands, through your eyes, through your vision and your ability to build a team, uh, most of the time people are investing in people. Like I said, ideas are a dime a dozen. How I represent myself never changes. How I position myself, my unwavering belief, my relentless confidence, I think that resonates with people. And I think my passion becomes quite infectious and they want to be a part of that. When people look at me, they go, okay, this guy has the ability to get knocked down and I believe he'll get up. He's not going to accept no. So a lot of it is how I carry myself. Obviously, they look at the past. What have they done in their past that makes them you know, equipped to do this today. And then the team of people that you've been able to bring on as well. So it's a collective amount of things, but first and foremost, big ideas attract big brains. So before you go to those investors, in my opinion, get some good advisors on board. So you're walking in and saying, I don't just have a great idea. I have a great strategy and the right people behind me to make sure that we don't fall on our face. Love it. Great advice. That one definitely. I've been taking a lot of advice on that one, 100%. Really, really good. Was there any, I mean, you must have been in loads of, in the last 12 months. I mean, you must have pitched to about a, a million different uh, partnerships, investors, or whatever it is. Was there ever a time that you ever walked away from a deal? You know, they were interested in you. They asked you to come in and present your your idea, grocery, uh, grocery neighbor to them. And did you ever walk away? And what were the circumstances and, and such, stuff like that? Yeah. So the devil's in the details and I have no problem walking away from deals because I've been burnt by deals yeah. by a lack of attention to the details, right. taking money from the wrong people 
could be absolutely devastating. Investor communication is so key. You want to be getting to them before they get to you. You want to answer their questions before they have them. All of these things play an integral role with your relationship. The deals that I walked away from were really when I just didn't feel it in my gut, like the care and concern for the actual model was there. And the people that are just looking for a quick exit that didn't care about building profitability, those things didn't make me feel well. Other deals I walked away from, there was a big publicly traded dev company that came forward and said, We'll build your technology for you just for equity in the business. But through the negotiations and the offerings, I ended up walking away because I didn't like who was going to own the IP. I didn't like not having control. I didn't like the values they were trying to create within the business and putting a valuation on the business because, you know, at this stage, you're only worth what somebody's willing to pay. Right. So if everybody else is willing to pay X and I have one person coming in saying, yeah, no, no, I'm not going to pay that. I'm going to give a discount. Well, and sorry, I'm going to walk away because everybody else is willing to pay and I'm not going to disrespect the investors that have already paid at that valuation. So, you know, the deals I walked away from were really where it didn't feel right in my gut or where the other party didn't understand or display a clear understanding for the magnitude of the opportunity. And I only speak like that because of the, fortunate position that I was in where I was just inundated by investors. Love it. Really good. That's, that's a, that's some good points there. I was just going to ask you, actually, I, I want to kind of go back to the question around bricks and mortar, Frank, actually. Do you still think, do you still feel that there's room for bricks and mortar, uh, bricks and mortar industries in particular, or do you think that, do you feel that, that they that basically, you know, digital is here to stay and, there's not going to be any space, you know, for the the big malls that, you know, that are owned by, you know, Mall of Scandinavia or, or whatever it might be. Do you think there's yeah. still room for bricks and mortar businesses these days or do you think the future is all in mobile? No, absolutely. Bricks and mortar is not going anywhere. I think bricks and mortar is here to stay as well. I think people love the experience. There's certain industries that bricks and mortar lends itself quite well to. Like for me, as an example, I'm not really interested in spending an absorbent amount of money on a suit or any type of clothing without trying it on. I think that just the experience of getting out and just interacting with people, I think that there's experiences that need to be had and can only be had through the physical environment. I think that online obviously is going to continue to grow. It's here to stay, but I don't think retail's gone. I think there will be a lot more niche. I think people will have to get more creative around the experiences but I think it's too uh, too early to say that retail is dead. I don't know about you, but in, in Europe in particular, I know that some of the, uh, what I call the big boys, like the department stores that have been around for donkey's years and that kind of stuff, you mean they folded, they've gone bankrupt. It's probably the same in Canada and stuff. And it, it's in, it'll be interesting to see if they come back as a, as a smaller entity or I remember there was a, there was a, it was a great company and I don't know if you had it in Canada, there was a company called Woolworths, which was back. They did, uh, they did like they would like a retail unit. Uh, you probably know about Woolworths. Woolworths, yeah. everyone loved it back in the eighties, up to the nineties, and then they went bankrupt and whatever it is. And you know, everyone loved Woolworths, and it was one of those kind of household names which just disappeared off the face of the planet. And then about six months later, someone decided to buy Woolworths, but they decided to just kind of create an online digital space, but it just didn't have the same, the same kind of gravitas as such, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. So I, I just kind of 
would love to know what your thoughts are about some of these um, big boys and these big department stores. Do you think that they're going to shrink down or do you think they're just going to disappear and, and wait for the smaller boutique ones to come in? Well, I think that they have an interesting position because it's a game of attention, right? And all of these big guys have these big followings. So to say that I know what's going to happen would be a misrepresentation. But what I would say is, is that they have a very short window right now to get their shit together, to stay <laughs> ahead of the curve, to not be superseded by the nimble, crazy entrepreneurs of, out there that believe that they can change the world. These big guys, they already have infrastructure. They have the, um, the followings. The problem is, is they move like this, right? So it's just what I would say is that they have to, in my opinion, sorry, if I were the big guys, my focus would be is how do I operate like a startup? How do I operate in a nimble environment so that I can quickly and I hate the word use pivot, but I'll use it. So I can quickly <laughs> I pivot within the industry. It's so cliche, it's so cliche at the stage, but but just so that they can quickly adapt to the ever-changing environment. Like it's a shame to watch some of them crumble when they had everything they needed. But by that same token, you know, nobody's really looking at their bottom line and they have really massive burn rates. And when those retail environments aren't generating, then nobody's losing more money than those big guys because of all the assets that they have that are just burning. Yeah, agreed. It's interesting because like, you know, even before the pandemic, they had so much debt as well, which was kind of scary. And I'm like, how the frick do you end up, you know, being the CEO or, you know, being in senior management, running a business, which is in debt, you nutcases. <laughs> yeah, money management. Oh, Course, please. Um, I know that we're uh, kind of pushing for time, but I've got a, a last question to ask you. I'm a, a big fan of Lego. When I was a kid, I, I remember saving up my pocket money to purchase these Lego kits. And, uh, and, and what I used to love about Lego in particular is I used to like to break it all up and then try to redo it again to make it bigger and better and do it quicker and faster and stuff like that. Now you're yeah. a big, you're, you're a, you're a, you're a builder as well. You're a builder of businesses and you've said that. And, and one of the concepts that I love to use is the, the same kind of concept of using Lego in businesses, right? Basically breaking it up and then building it back up to make it an improvement. Is this something that you would advise a startup company? Well, maybe not a startup company, but maybe a company that's been around for quite some time. They're looking for new ways to, I don't know, uh, tap into new markets, or they just want to kind of reinvent themselves, adapt themselves. Well, you know, I'd love to know what your thoughts are on this and, and, and you know, what, what, what are your advice is to others? Yeah, I think that most people fail to look inside and they constantly look outside. As soon as things go wrong and start to slow down, they start thinking about how can I get more from my surrounding environment instead of how do I squeeze the juice out of the berries that I have? Right. So a lot of people fail to try and look like behind them and say, okay, I've got this organization, it's falling apart. Oh, how do I get more customers to get in the door to revive us? Instead of thinking, what can I do with the resources that I have? How can I make this useful in today's landscape? Because I might not be relevant today because just because something doesn't work this way doesn't mean it won't work that way. So I think a lot of people fail to look inside during these kind of chaotic moments and they just look at, oh, what can I grab? What's out there for me to get? Instead of going, okay, hold on a second. I have a customer base. 
Am I actually getting everything I can from my current customer base? How do I squeeze as much of the juice out of the berry that I currently have instead of trying to get more berries? So I would just say it's about looking inside the war chest and going, what else can I do with this? Now, how do I repurpose all of these things that we've invested in? Just like the, in the transportation, you know, when I was in the van line, we were all using all these furniture pads for moving household goods. And then Mark and I, we made special products a thing in Canada. Suddenly we went, well, all you guys complain about having a seasonal business. You idiots, there's all this equipment just sitting there. Blanket wrap special products. Go after the B2B. And then suddenly it was this monster business because all we did was look behind us and go, well, I don't want that equipment sitting there collecting dust. Love it. Very cool. Very cool. Awesome. Listen, I know that your vision is to get a thousand grocery trucks nationally in Canada uh, for grocery neighbor. And I know that's your kind of your big vision, which, which, which we'd love to help you in, in helping you. So what's going to say, is there anything that you're, uh, that you're working on right now this year that maybe some of our listeners can help you in terms of achieving your vision? Just go to grocerynaver.com. And if it's interesting to you, vote. If it's not, don't. I know I'm not looking for skewed data. I'm not looking for buying uh, friends or intelligence. If you think that we're useful and good for you, then vote to have a store in your neighborhood. But I'm not looking for anything outside of to solve problems. You know, what, what, what your audience can do for me is go and help somebody else solve a problem. That's kind of what I'm looking for. I'm and trying to leave a legacy. Of Frank, of course, on Clubhouse, of course. That's, a, that's another, that's important as well, by the way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's awesome. So listen, Frank, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show today. I really, really appreciate it. I really enjoyed some of our conversations. And, I, and guys, I hope that you've got some great golden nuggets from Frank's conversation and uh, I hope that you've enjoyed today. So Frank, just want to say thanks very much for being on the show, man. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. It was fun. So guys, listen, if you have any further questions, do me a favor, please connect with Frank and his social media handle is in the link below. You can feel free to connect with Frank and just mention the podcast, the Game Changers Experience podcast. So he knows exactly that you are. If you are, would like to invest in Grocery Neighbor, of course, speak to Frank directly and just mention the podcast and then maybe I can invoice him. No, I'm kidding. I'm only joking. Um, <laughs> it's all good. Awesome. Listen, guys, hope to hope uh, you've had some great experiences and we'll see you on the next Game Changers experience. Take care from me and Frank. See you soon. Hey, you guys, I just want to say thank you so much for listening in to this episode of the Game Changers experience. I hope that you got some amazing value, some great insights and golden nuggets that you can implement into your business straight away. I would really, really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star review on the button below. Have a fantastic day, and we'll see you on the next episode. Take care.